My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm part of the team here, and it's great to be with you today and to look at this passage from God's Word. Now, I wonder, who is the most powerful person in the world? Who is the most powerful person in the world? Maybe uh, you think of a politician like Xi Jinping, the leader of China, or Vladimir Putin, or Donald Trump. Maybe you think of a businessman like uh, Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg. Or maybe uh, you think of a media mogul like Rupert Murdoch or Michael Bloomberg. Who is the most powerful person in the world? Now I wonder, what would it be like to meet them? I imagine uh, it would be intimidating. Anytime we meet someone powerful or influential or famous, it can be nerve-wracking. Now, I haven't uh, personally met many uh, famous people in my life, but I asked the staff team this week, who's the most powerful or most famous person you've ever met? One of them uh, told me about the time that her husband, her cricket-obsessed husband, uh, was in the same room as Brian Lara, the West Indian cricket uh, legend. Now, he didn't actually meet him. He was just in the same room with him. Uh, but according to his wife, it was enough to, and I'm quoting her, make his knees wobble. <laughs> now, it wasn't me, just so we're clear. And I'm not going to tell you who it was because I don't want to embarrass Josh Brandon. <laughs> Another person told me about the time that her dad fixed Mel Gibson's fridge. Uh, she said that when he came to the house to pay the bill, uh, her mum, she writes, my poor mother was in complete shock. She forgot what to say and couldn't think straight. I guess she didn't realise who he was when she took the booking over the phone. Whenever we're in the presence of someone powerful or someone we admire or someone famous, it can be intimidating and nerve-wracking. And the reason I bring this up is because we see something similar happening today in the life of Jesus. We see three different stories with three groups of people, and they all witness Jesus do something amazing. They all witness firsthand the power of Jesus. And it leads to a variety of different responses. Now, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, we're in a sermon series at the moment called Who is Jesus? We're walking through the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 8 to 12, and we're looking at what Jesus said and did to help us discover who he is. And today, we're going to be talking about the power of Jesus. In fact, the title of today's sermon is How Powerful is Jesus? What authority does Jesus have? What power does he possess? This is what this passage is all about. And so if you're a Christian, my hope for you today is that when you leave uh, in just a short period of time, when you walk out those doors, you will leave with a bigger, greater, grander vision of Jesus. That you will see Jesus for who he really is so that you will respond as you really should. If you're not a Christian, it's great to have you with us. My hope is really the same for you, that you will see Jesus for who he really is. 
Because Jesus, as he really is, not as we've imagined him to be, not as we'd like him to be, but Jesus, as he really is, is what we all really need. So let's look at these three stories together to see what they have to say to us about Jesus. The first story, if you're taking notes, shows us that Jesus has authority over the forces of nature. Jesus has authority over the forces of nature. If you have your Bible open there in front of you, you'll see that the story begins with Jesus and his disciples on a boat. And they're on the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a really big freshwater lake in Israel. It's about 21 kilometers long from top to bottom, and it's about 13 kilometers wide at its widest point. So it's a big body of water. You can see there a photo from uh, Google Earth on the screen. Now, I got to swim uh, in the Sea of Galilee a number of years ago when I visited Israel, and it was just an amazing experience. The sun was setting, the sea was calm. It was just incredible. But the Sea of Galilee isn't always calm. Uh, Because of its altitude, it's quite low. Because of the mountains that are around it and the winds that, that come over those mountains, the Sea of Galilee is notorious for these sudden, violent storms. And this is what happens here in Matthew chapter 8. A furious storm begins to rock the boat. And it wouldn't have been a very big boat. Uh, It was probably about eight meters long, two meters wide, um, probably big enough to carry about 15 people. In fact, back in 1986, there was a severe drought in Israel, and two shepherds were walking along the sea, uh, the, the bed of the Sea of Galilee, and they stumbled across the wreck of a boat. Um, and it's believed that this boat that they discovered was actually from Jesus' day, and it was the type of boat that Jesus would have used. And so they're on this boat, and it's being rocked around. The waves are crashing over the side. Not that you would know it from Jesus' reaction. Verse 24, but Jesus was sleeping. Now, some of you have teenagers, so you're not surprised, you know, that that someone could sleep through something like this. But why was Jesus sleeping? Well, of course, he was probably tired. He'd had a long day teaching, healing, interacting with the crowds. He needed rest like we do. He was human like we are. But he's sleeping for another reason as well. He's at peace. He He's at rest. He trusts God. And Jesus is kind of a contrast to the disciples. You see, the disciples, on the other hand, are freaking out. Now, remember, some of these guys were fishermen. Some of these would have fished on the Sea of Galilee, but even they are afraid. And so they decide to wake Jesus up. Verse 25, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now, it's actually even more intense in the original Greek and the the language it was written in. It's just three words. Save, Lord, dying. It's like that's all that they could get out. They are terrified. Now, it's not clear what exactly the disciples were hoping Jesus could do for them. You know, maybe he could start helping them shovel water out of the boat or or maybe he could pray and ask God to, to calm the storm. Whatever it is, I don't think they were expecting Jesus to do what he goes on to do. You see, Jesus wakes up, and he doesn't look at the storm or talk to the storm. Instead, he talks to them. 
and he says in verse 26, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Now, I imagine the disciples were probably thought to themselves, look around, Jesus. Isn't it obvious why we're afraid? I mean, at one level, their fear is very understandable. It's natural for them to be afraid. Being stuck in a storm at sea is scary. But at another level, their fear doesn't make sense. Why? Because of who's in the boat with them. Think about it this way. There have been times when I've been swimming with my kids when when they were little. And I would kind of uh, take them out into the middle of the pool, into deep water. And when they were little, there were occasions when they would begin to, to get a little bit frightened. They'd begin to, to freak out. They'd begin to, to thrash around and say, take me back. I can't stand. Take me back. Now, at one level, their fear is understandable. I mean, deep water is scary, especially if you can't swim. But at another level, their fear doesn't make sense. Why? Because I'm holding them. I've got them. And this is what I would say to them. I'd say, it's okay. I've got you. I'm not going to let you go. You don't have to be afraid. And so the disciples' overwhelming fear at this storm doesn't make sense. Because the Lord of the storm, the Son of God, is in the boat with them. And this is what Jesus goes on to show them. After he kind of rebukes the disciples, he then turns his attention to the storm. Verse 26. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Now, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus simply said, quiet, be still. Two words in Greek. That's it. To a storm. I mean, this is how we talk, this is how parents talk to their children, isn't it? Be quiet, sit still. Don't move. And this is how Jesus talks to a storm. And he doesn't beg. He doesn't plead. He doesn't even pray. He doesn't ask God to calm the storm. Why? Because he is God. See, this is the point of the story. It's forcing us to ask the question, who is this? And that's exactly the question that the disciples go on to ask. Look at verse 27. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. This is the question that is provoked by this story. Who is this? What kind of man is this? Because he is doing things only God can do. You know, Psalm 89 in the Old Testament, says about God, says, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 107 says about God, he stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Now, the disciples in the boat with Jesus, they were good Jews. They knew these scriptures They're utterly amazed. They're beginning to realize that this man in the boat with them is no ordinary man. 
because he's doing and saying things that only God can do. And that's the point of this story, that Jesus has authority that belongs to God. Jesus has power that only God possesses. Jesus has authority over the forces of nature. That's the point of this first story. But it leads us to the second story, because what we see there is that Jesus also has authority over the forces of evil. You see, after Jesus calms the storm, he and the disciples get back into the boat, or, or stay in the boat, they weren't knocked out, they're still in the boat, and they cross over to the other side of the sea. Now, we're told there that they arrive at the region of the Gadarenes. Now, it's debated exactly where this region is, but it would seem clear that it's a Gentile region. It's a non-Jewish region. This would explain the, the presence of the pigs later in the story. Now, when they arrive in this region, we're told there that Jesus is confronted by two demon-possessed men. Verse 28 tells us that these were violent, scary men. Everyone in the region was kind of deathly afraid of them. They wouldn't go near them. But what's interesting is that the demons who possessed these men were deathly afraid of Jesus. Look at verse 29. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Now notice, these demons have great theology. They know who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. You know, the disciples ask the question, who is this man? The demon's like, well, we can tell you. He's the Son of God. They know who he is. They also know why Jesus has come. He's come to put an end to evil, which includes them. They talk there about an appointed time. They know that there is a day coming when there will be a final judgment, when God will put an end to evil once and forever. When, when they will be destroyed, when they will be cast out into darkness, and they're wondering, is that why you're here, Jesus? Have you come to get rid of us already? Now, before we look at what happens next, we need to talk about evil spiritual forces for just a moment. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel, the first story about evil spirits. And I think when it comes to stories like this in the Bible, there are all different kinds of reactions and responses to it. I think some of us in the room have no issues with this. Of course, this is what Jesus did. He's the Son of God. I think others of us think it's a little bit weird. You know, maybe this is the part of Christianity that we struggle with a little bit. And then maybe there's a few of us that think it's just nonsense. It's primitive, outdated, superstitious nonsense. So how should we approach stories like this in the Bible? Well, we need to understand that within the worldview of the Bible, evil is more than what nasty, horrible humans do to each other. According to the worldview of the Bible, there are forces at work in and through and behind the evil and horrible things that we say and do and think. And the Bible names these evil forces as demons, which simply means evil spirit. Now, we don't have time to get into the, the origins and the strategies of Satan and his demons. But suffice to say, they are anti-God, they are anti-human, 
They are anti-life and they are anti-relationship. They are at work in the world principally to destroy faith in God, to destroy human beings, to destroy relationships, to destroy community, to destroy life and love which come from God. Now, it's important to know that they're not on the same level as God. This is not a fair fight. God is far and above, uh, over them. God is the creator of all things, the ruler of all things. They're, they're powerful, but they're limited. They cannot be in all places at all times, and they do not know everything. Nor can they be discerned with the five senses. Demons are an unseen spiritual reality much like other spiritual realities. Uh, we cannot see them with our hands, we cannot touch them with our, did I say see them with our hands? That would be impressive. We cannot see them with our eyes, touch them with our hands. But we can see their impact around us. Now where do we see their impact? Well, let's leave aside the really obvious, horrific evil in our world. Things like human trafficking and, and sexual abuse. People like Adolf Hitler and, and Joseph Stalin and, and, and many that we could list. Let's just think about ourselves for a moment. The thoughts that pop into our minds. The things that we say sometimes. The habits we can't break. The behaviors we can't stop. When I'm sure all of us have, have thought at some point why did I say that? Why did I do that? Now, I'm not saying that we're not responsible for these things. We are responsible for our choices and our actions. We can't blame Satan and his demons for our choices and our decisions and our sins. I mean, just think about the Garden of Eden for a moment. Remember, Adam and Eve were influenced by the lies of the serpent to do what God did not want them to do. Now, who did God hold responsible? Both of them, both Adam and Eve and the serpent. We can't blame Satan and demons for our sin, our choices, our decisions. But we shouldn't be ignorant of, of demons and evil spiritual forces as well. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, Be alert and of sober mind. In other words, be awake and think clearly. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, looking for faith in Jesus that they can destroy. See, the Bible is saying to us that there is something more at work in our world than just human beings being stupid and evil and nasty to one another, than just chemicals going haywire in our brains than just uh, people not being educated enough. Now, all of those things play a part. We are holistic people. We are not purely spiritual. We're, we're mental, we're physical, we're emotional, we're spiritual. And so we need to take into account all those things. But we also need to recognize that according to the Bible, there is real evil at work in the world. And this is partly why Jesus came. He came to deal with the forces of evil. This is why Jesus confronted them in his life and ministry. This is why Jesus disarmed them on the cross. Because of what Jesus has done, their accusations against us no longer stick. And he will one day come again 
to destroy evil once and forever. And so getting back to the story, this is why these demons are freaking out. They know who Jesus is, they know why Jesus has come, and they just want to scatter away from him. Look at verse 31. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Now, it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, it's not clear why the demons asked to be sent into the pigs. I can think of other places I would prefer to be sent. Maybe it just shows us that demons really are dumb and stupid. It's not clear why these pigs kind of threw themselves off the the cliff and, and jumped into the water. Maybe it's just another sign of what what demons do. They bring about death and destruction. Whatever the case may be, the point is not really the pigs, even though I can't help but grieve over all the wasted bacon. (laughs) The point is that Jesus has authority over the forces of evil. In fact, did you notice that phrase in, in verse 31? The demons begged Jesus. They are subservient to Jesus. Jesus has authority over them. And what this means is that we shouldn't fear demons. We should be realistic about them. We should be sober-minded about them, as the Bible says, but we shouldn't be obsessed by them. We shouldn't be fearful of them. Jesus has authority over all things, including evil spiritual forces. And so Jesus allows these demons to go into the pigs. They they jump into the water. And it would have been quite a dramatic scene. You can imagine all the pigs thrashing around in the water. And it leads to a very dramatic response. Look at verse 33. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to stay with them, to pray for them, to teach them. No, to leave their region. They begged Jesus to leave. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and now the people of this region begged Jesus to go away. And isn't this still how people respond to Jesus today? Some people respond like the disciples on the boat, who is this? Other people respond to Jesus by saying, leave me alone. Jesus is too powerful, too uncomfortable, too confronting. You see, people recognize rightly that if they come to Jesus, they have to submit to him. They have to hand over control to him. But when Jesus comes into your life, you see, he does not come in like a tenant. You know, he rents a room in your life, but you just have ownership and control. You retain those things. And when Jesus comes into your life, he comes in as the landlord, a loving, gracious landlord, but he begins to take over. He begins to change and transform you from the inside out. 
reminds me of a story I, I read uh, recently about a man named Kenneth Clark. Kenneth was a very uh, cultured man. He had a show on the BBC. He was the director of the National Gallery in Britain. And he wrote an autobiography in which he uh, describes this fascinating experience. He writes this. He says, I had a religious experience. It took place in the church of San Lorenzo. I can only say that for a few minutes, my whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I had known before. This state of mind lasted for several months, and wonderful though it was, it posed an awkward problem in terms of action. My life was far from blameless. I would have to reform. My family would think I was going mad. And perhaps, after all, it was a delusion, for I was, in every way, unworthy of receiving such a flood of grace. Gradually, the effect wore off, and I made no effort to retain it. I think I was right. I was too deeply embedded in the, the world to change course. But that I had felt the finger of God, I am quite sure. And although the memory of this experience has faded, it still helps me to understand the joys of the saints. He got near to Jesus. He felt the joy. He tasted the grace. But he realized what it would mean. It would mean submission. It would mean change. It would mean reform. And he says, leave me alone, Jesus. And this is the tragedy of sending Jesus away, especially when we realize what he has come to give to us, which is what we see in the third and final story in this passage. Jesus has authority over the forces of nature. He has authority over the forces of evil. And finally, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. See, Jesus and the disciples hop back in the boat. They go back over to Jesus' hometown in Capernaum. And it's there that Jesus has another encounter. A group of friends bring in a paralyzed man lying on a mat to Jesus. And I want you to picture the scene. You know, this paralyzed man is lying before Jesus. He and his friends have probably heard what Jesus can do. They've probably heard that he can heal paralyzed people. And they're thinking, why wouldn't he do it for our friend as well? And so Jesus looks at this paralyzed man who's lying before him and he says to him, take heart, son. And this paralyzed man is probably imagining in his mind everything he's about to do. He's going to jump up. He's going to dance. He's going to run around. He's waiting for Jesus to say the words. And Jesus says to him, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. And he says, what now? Come again, Jesus. I mean, that's nice, but that's not why I'm here. I thought it's pretty obvious why I'm here, Jesus. I mean, why would Jesus say this to this man? Your sins are forgiven. It's obviously, obviously not what he came for. Obviously not what he's asking for. Why would he say this to this man? Well, the answer is pretty simple. The answer actually reveals why Jesus came. This paralyzed man thought that his greatest need was healing. But Jesus wants him and he wants us and he wants everyone to know that he has a greater need. We have a greater need than just physical healing. His greatest need is forgiveness. He needs more than just his legs fixed. 
He needs his life washed clean. He needs his sins forgiven. In other words, he came to Jesus looking for a gift, the gift of healing. But Jesus gave him a much better, much more lasting gift, the gift of forgiveness, the gift that we all need. I love the way the writer Glenn Scrivener puts it. He says, Jesus considers that being forgiven is more important than your health, more important than money or getting a job or a family, all of which would have been virtually impossible for this paralyzed man. Jesus thinks forgiveness is the priority because if our sins remain unforgiven, it doesn't matter if we have the finest health, if we get the greatest job, a pile of money, and an adoring family. If we only have our health, we might have a terrific life, but a horrendous eternity. Jesus knows what is most important. Forgiveness is the priority. Now, do you believe this? Do you really believe this? I'm not sure that the paralyzed man believed this, at least not at first. But we're not actually told how he responds to Jesus. Instead, we're told about the religious leaders who were there in the crowd. And, and they look at this and they say, this fellow is blaspheming. You see, when Jesus claims to forgive sins, he is again, again claiming to do something that only God can do. All sin is against God, which means only God can forgive sins. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine you borrowed my car and you crashed it. You come up to me after church while I'm talking with Steve and our youth pastor. And you come up and you say, oh, I'm really sorry about your car. And then Stephen says, don't worry about it. You're forgiven. Now, you know, of course I would forgive you. But I'd probably say to Stephen, mate, this is between me and this person. See, only God can forgive sins. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's not saying, you know, I'll pray and ask God to forgive your sins. Or God has told me that your sins are forgiven. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, let's be honest. It's easy to say this. I mean, anyone can say this. But how do you know it's true? How do you know it's real? Well, Jesus backs up his divine claim with a divine act. He, he goes on and he heals this paralyzed man. He also gives him what he, what he came looking for. And he, wants, he does it so that everyone will know that he has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus talks the talk and he walks the walk. And so does this paralyzed man. He picks up his mat and he walks out of that building. Not only with new legs, but with a new relationship with God. A new standing before God. A new forgiveness from God. And I imagine that when we meet this man one day, when we meet him in glory, if we were to ask him, what was the better gift? What was more important to you? What was more meaningful to you? Was it the healing or was it the forgiveness? Was it your legs being fixed or was it your sins being forgiven? I imagine he'd look us in the eye and he'd say without hesitation, it was the gift of forgiveness. The legs were good for a while but the gift of forgiveness keeps on giving and it will give and give and give into eternity. And so I guess the question for us is pretty simple. Who do you say that Jesus is? And do you want
what Jesus offers. Because the message of this passage is clear. Jesus is none other than the Son of God, and He has come to give us forgiveness from God. And to receive it, you just need to ask. He has the authority to forgive your sins. He proved it with His life. He purchased it with His death. And He promises to give it to all who come to Him in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the incredible gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in his life we see his authority and his power, that he has authority and power over everything that we face over all of our enemies, over sin and sickness and evil and death, that he has come to deal with them on our behalf. And that he invites us to come to him to receive what he has to offer. Not because of how good we are, but because of how good he is. And so, Lord, help us, no matter what we're facing in life, to keep trusting Jesus, to keep following Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.